We're, we're working through the Gospel of Mark together in our teaching time. And with some remaining moments today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a passage in the Gospel of Mark. No surprise there for those of you who are regulars. Uh, it's been a joy for us to study through these first, uh, first chapters together. We're going to be looking today at a defining statement of Jesus' ministry that could be described as nothing less than scandalous. And yeah, I said that right. It is a scandalous statement that, that Jesus makes. Now, we, we know a thing or two about scandalous statements, don't we? Whether, whether it's a famous athlete weighing in on the freedom of speech and the mounting pressure from communist China, or, or a presidential hopeful revealing that his desire would be to confiscate weapons, we, we know a thing or two about scandalous statements. Maybe it's a, a racist, prejudiced rant that exposes popular businessmen. It's pretty hard in our 24-hour news cycle where everybody owns a camera, it's pretty hard to escape the sound bites. And so we've seen people, their reputations destroyed in the wake of controversy over something they had said. Here in Mark chapter 2, we're going to look this morning as Jesus makes one of the most scandalous statements in all of the Gospels. And in so doing, he gives shape and focus to his ministry. He identifies his mission clearly, and he draws battle lines with the religious leaders that will mark the, the conflict between the two of them for the rest of this Gospel narrative. Yeah, scandal, scandal would be a good word for it. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13, we're going to see about this scandal of God's grace. Verse 13, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. So we're going to look this morning at a few, uh, a few things that are highlighted in these nine verses or so and hopefully make some clear application to our lives. The first we see is the call of Levi. You might know him as Matthew. Uh, that is the, uh, the other name he goes by. He's a tax collector. So Jesus says again he is out beside the sea. He is in Capernaum that was bordering the Sea of Galilee. He was walking along beside the sea. And he came to a place where there was a tax booth, a, a toll booth, a toll station. So essentially, th there was a road that came from the small kingdom of Philip through Capernaum to the kingdom of Herod Antipas. And along that road, there were tax booths. So he came walking along and found Levi, or found Matthew, sitting in his booth. And the crowd was coming to him. Again, the crowd is pressing upon him. The crowd it wants to see the deliverance, wants to see the miracle, wants to see the show. The crowd is once again pressing in on him. So here's Jesus and his entourage, the many disciples that are following him. The crowds that press in on him. And he comes to Levi. And some of you are thinking, 
Okay, so he's a tax collector. What's the big deal about that, right? My uncle was the tax collector in our town. People didn't hate him. He was a really, he's a really friendly guy. You would love him. My uncle Glenn, great dude. But, but he was the tax collector my whole life. And so when I hear that, that tax collectors were hated, I have a hard time understanding. Because who could hate my uncle Glenn? He coached middle school girls basketball. He was a, a social studies teacher. What, what in the world? He's a good man. What happened? So here's the deal. Why, why are they so bad? Well, tax collectors in the time were hated with good reason. They profited from exploiting their brothers and sisters. Rome actually offered tax franchises. So you had to have a little bit of money before you were able to do this job. You purchased the franchise from them and then set up your business. And typically, you established with Rome a quota that you had to provide for them. And anything you made on top of that went right into your pocket. What could possibly go wrong with a system like that, right? <laughs> Sounds pretty good. So what happened was, these people of Jewish origin sold their souls to the Roman government and began to exploit their countrymen for their own financial gain. All right. Well, now we understand, right? Levi... Levi was working the tax booth, taking money, probably in extortion and physical harm. They, these were shady uh, characters. They were like the underbelly of Capernaum. They were not, they were not the uh, moral and righteous and religious people. They were the worst of the worst. Jews were actually allowed to, allowed to lie to tax collectors. They were free to do it. Tax collectors were barred from te the temple. These guys were awful. Here's what R.C. Sproul says about them. While competition for tax collector jobs was fierce because the position was so lucrative, the job actually came with heavy social costs. Jews who became tax collectors were regarded as traitors. They had to give up their Jewish identity, their social status, and their membership in the synagogue and were seen as disgraced in the eyes of their families. Furthermore, anyone who dealt with a tax collector as a friend was considered unclean. Thus, it was scandalous when Jesus walked up to Levi's tax shanty and said to him, follow me. It was unthinkable that he would select a tax collector to be part of his band of disciples. Yet, yet Mark has already shown us that Jesus is more than willing to do the unthinkable. As he reaches out his hand and touches the untouchable, healing the leper, He says to Levi, sees him in the booth, says, come, follow me. Sounds an awful lot like the call he made to the fishermen, right? Walks up to Peter and uh, Simon and Andrew, walks up to James and John, says, come, follow me. They left their nets, they left their dad, they left their life, and they immediately rose and followed him. He did the same thing. I'm still intrigued by the power of the call of Jesus. As I'm reading these stories, I remember God's call on my life. It wasn't that instantaneous for me. I wrestled with the Lord for a long season because I felt God calling me to ministry, but I had my own plans and desires. I wanted to teach history, and I was really excited about that because I really like history, and I thought I liked teenagers. <laughs> and I realized God calls certain people to certain things. And I, I wrestled with the Lord for a long season. This right here, right here, God says, Jesus says, come follow me, and immediately he gets up and lays it all down. 
the power of the call of Christ on our lives. I'm reminded that that power is still present in the call of Christ as we heard Pastor Joseph and Pastor Gita's story just this morning. As God provided a deliverance and told them to walk away from their, their engineering carpentry background, their teaching background, and go preach the gospel. God is still calling people to walk away from their dreams and their desires and their plans. Still calling people to lay it all down and follow him at all costs. Still calling people to great personal sacrifice for the advance of the gospel. And here, here Levi gets up. Now this job wasn't like the fishermen. The fishermen can go back to fishing. They actually do. We find them fishing again later in the gospels. Once you vacate your shanty, somebody else is waiting to take it. This was not something you could slide in and out of. Your, your spot on the, on the tax registry was gone as soon as you vacated it. This was going to cost him dearly. But it, it's a scandal in terms of, of Jesus talking to a, a hated person said, I want you to come be part of my band. Come be part of my team. No one would want to be a friend of a tax collector. No one would want him to be part of his intimate company. And Jesus picks him. He looks past all of that, all the shame and reproach that this man could bring on him, and he calls him into his inner circle. This is quite a big day for Levi. So he has a party at his house. It's a big party, a feast, a dramatic party, and he invites a really rough crowd, the kind of people that would make us uncomfortable. Dinner at Levi's house was a, a lavish feast. They're reclining at the table. The Bible says many tax collectors and sinners were there. Every time I hear that word, I think about the church lady. Sinners. Right? Who are these sinners? These are people who openly rejected the law of God. These are not Jewish people who were pretty moral and righteous and still messing up. No, they, they just... They rejected it. They wanted no part of it. The tax collectors did not have the greatest group of friends. These people, like I said, were the underbelly of Capernaum. So they're all gathering at Matthew's house. And, and Jesus and his disciples are there with them. These folks are unrighteous, immoral, separated from God. And Jesus is there sharing a meal with them. It's too much for the religious crowd. The religious crowd who distinguish themselves by these laws of separation. I won't go on this place on this day. I won't stay. I won't get any nearer these kind of people than 100 yards. I won't. They distinguish themselves as holy before God by their parade of, of separation. And they were like, wait a minute. Why is Jesus, who appears to believe himself to be righteous and moral, hanging out with people who are very clearly not righteous and, and moral. Eating a meal is a sign of fellowship. You're, you're accepting them. You're welcoming them in. Why is he accepting them? Why is he entertaining them? Why in the world would somebody who believes himself to be moral and righteous engage with people who aren't? He's going to get some of that on him. It's going to stain him. It'll make him unclean. So they ask his disciples, and Jesus hears it and responds with one of the most scandalous statements he could make. He says to them, look, it's not the sick who, or it's not the, the, the well who need the doctor. It's sick. The sick need a physician. The healthy don't need to go to the doctor. 
of course. I got, that makes sense, right? It isn't somebody who is the picture of health that needs the physician's help. It's somebody whose health is, has left them. It's somebody who is ill, weak, frail. It's somebody who's, who has an illness, a sickness, a disease. It's those people who need a physician's help. The physician isn't there for all the healthy people. The physician is there for the sick people. And it's probably only within the last 60 years that we're all told to go hang out there when we're well. I can't imagine my great-grandparents going to the doctor when they didn't need to. I always feel weird walking in there anyway because you're basically walking into a Petri dish of bacteria and disease. Right? And they're like, oh, that's okay. Over here is the sick side. Over there is the healthy side. And it's separated by like six inches of disgusting toys that little kids have slobbered on. Right? No wonder we're all sick. We're getting sick at the doctor's office. The, the physician is for the sick people. Right? Jesus said it's not, it's not the healthy that need the physician. It's the sick. And I didn't come to call righteous people. I came to call sinners. And Luke adds sinners to repentance. What does this mean? Well, the analogy is simple enough. Doctors treat sick people. Those who are well have no need of a doctor. So it slide into the next statement. What he's saying then is, the righteous people are not his focus, but sinners are his focus. What does he mean by that? Does he actually mean that he doesn't care if people are moral and righteous? No. That's not at all what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is, the call that he makes... The call to the kingdom of God. Remember what his message was? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is near. It is right here at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That call goes out not to the righteous, pseudo-religious, self-deceived people who think that they're okay with God because of all their good deeds. That call to the kingdom goes out to those who are aware that they are sick of the soul. That they are paralyzed in the spirit. That they are dead in trespass and sin. The religious leaders, see, they judge themselves as okay with God. They think they're okay with God because they live good lives. They think they're okay with God because they've been so focused on religious performance. They think they're okay with God, and what they mean is they don't have a need for a Savior because their sin isn't as bad as these nasty people who are eating with Jesus. That's what they're saying. Why are you hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. Jesus, you're a righteous person. You're going to make yourself unrighteous by fraternizing with unrighteous people. Don't you know bad company corrupts good character? What are you doing? And Jesus said, listen, I'm not here to make this call to the religious people who have no need of a Savior. The call to the kingdom just falls on deaf ears there. But I'm here to call people who have recognized the emptiness of their lives. 
have, have recognized the deception of self-righteousness and morality, have seen the, the depths of depravity in their soul, recognize they don't have the power to fix it. I'm here to call those people into a life they've never imagined. You see, the one who understands his true condition, his spiritual paralysis, his moral bankruptcy before God, that, that person, that sinner, is in good company. And you might be offended that people would be called sinners. You might be offended to think that I think you're a sinner. You shouldn't be offended. I, I think I'm a sinner too. I'm not talking, when we talk about sin, we're not talking about a sliding scale where I'm comparing you to me. That's ridiculous. You can always find somebody who's a little holier and a little less holy than you are, right? I'm talking about how do you stack up to Jesus? Are you as perfect as God? Are you as true as God? Are you as holy and righteous as God? And if you're not, well, good, you're a sinner like the rest of us. You don't meet his expectations and righteous, holy standards. The person who doesn't think that's him has no hope in the gospel. He doesn't need the gospel. He just needs grit and effort and good deeds. The person who realizes that they are indeed a sinner, that they have fallen short of the glory of God, that they have, they have heaped up for themselves the wrath and condemnation of God because of their rebellion against him, that person stands ready to receive the amazing grace of Jesus. And those are the people that Jesus came to save. Jesus came to preach the good news that the kingdom is here. And the call of that kingdom apparently isn't for those who everyone thinks are really good. The call of that kingdom isn't for the powerful or the influential, the religious and the moral. No, no, no. It is for those who, whose hearts have seen their true condition and have turned to Jesus for healing and forgiveness. And in the kingdom of God, sinners find forgiveness and the righteous remain dead in their sin. That's what he's saying. The people who are building their lives on their own righteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God. But those who recognize their own mess and their need for Jesus, theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who aren't so full of their own righteousness, but those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. Isn't that what Jesus said? In the kingdom of God, sinners find forgiveness. The righteous who think that their moral deeds have placed them on equal footing with God, they don't find hope in the gospel. All right. Let's make no mistake about it. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. He didn't come to make good people better. He came to raise dead people to life. And those of us who grew up in religious systems, and I am one of those people, who, where we were taught that, maybe not explicitly, but it was implied that God was happier with us if we did a lot of really good deeds. We need to hear this message. Our hope is not in our own obedience to the law or to the, to the scripture's commandments. Our hope is in 
the one who fulfilled all of it for us because we realize we can't. That is the essence of the gospel. And when Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, that's what he means. The call of the kingdom is for those who are not in pride, sitting with their arms crossed, saying, look, I don't have much need for a savior, but my neighbor does. You should see him. He's a mess. No, Jesus came for the neighbor who's willing to be honest about his condition and humble before the Lord and seek forgiveness and grace. All right, so what? So what? What does all this teach us? How are we supposed to apply this today? A couple things. One, no one is beyond the reach of grace. You cannot outsin the grace of Jesus Christ. There is nothing, hear me, nothing that you have done in your past. No sin, no law that you've broken, no relationship you've busted, no season of wandering and foolishness that you've committed, nothing that you have done is enough to separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. Absolutely nothing. And if you're here today and you're like, look, I'd love to be a Christian, but you don't understand the mess of a life, my friend, you need to look no further than the life of Levi the tax collector who sold his soul to the Roman government, persecuted his brothers and sisters, and yet God called him into, into Jesus' band of disciples. You are not beyond the reach of grace. What does that mean? That means if you're here and struggling to, over, to overcome that in your own heart, look to Jesus. He'll forgive you right where you are, accept you right where you are. You are not beyond his call. And if you have a loved one, a friend, a family member, a spouse you've been praying for for 40 years, don't you give up. Nobody is beyond the grace of Jesus. As horribly as, as we, as horribly, horribly as Levi had sinned against God and his countrymen, as selfish as he had been, he was not too far away for Christ to reach him. Secondly, God welcomes and saves the sinners, the outcasts. One pastor put it this way, and I loved it. The last the lost, and the least. God welcomes them. That's who the table has been prepared for. That's who gets to clothe themselves in the, in the, the festive garments. It's the last, the lost, the least. Not those who refuse to see themselves as needy, but those, not those who believe they're already righteous, not those whose pride has blinded them, those who don't think they need any saving. Those people don't find forgiveness. And nor will those think they need to, no, those people who need, think they need to clean themselves up first before they come to God, they don't find forgiveness either. And some of you might be here in that boat. You're like, yeah, look, I know I'm a mess, and I know I need Jesus, but I'm really a mess. And so I'm going to work on this for about six months or so, try to fix some of this mess, and then maybe I'll be okay and God will, no! No, no, no. If you put your hands on it, it's gonna, you're going to get more of what you already got. You've already made a mess. Stop it. Take your hands off. Let Jesus fix the mess. You can't clean yourself into the kingdom of God. Because if you do that, you're trusting in your own works to clean yourself. And the gospel isn't about your own works. What about taking your hands off and letting the perfect one reform you? If you wait... If you wait until you make yourself acceptable to God, you'll never make it because you can't make yourself acceptable. God saves the one who recognizes the sickness of heart and the paralysis of soul, who knows he has sinned against God and rebelled against him and cries out in humility for healing and forgiveness. Let's not forget that God saves sinners. 
And thirdly today, let's not forget who we are in the story. Like We like to, like to read passages like this and identify, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you are not Jesus in this story. Safe assumption. You are not the Savior of the world. Your blood did not forgive us from our sins. So you're not him. Okay, so who, who, which of the characters are you? That leaves the sinners and tax collectors and the religious crowd. You might find yourself today in the company of the scribes and Pharisees, falsely believing that your good deeds have made you right with God, somehow looking down your nose at the dirty people who can't get their lives together. That might be you. If it is, you need to repent of sin and trust in Jesus. But many of us today would do well to remember that we are the kind of people that bring shame and reproach on Jesus when he associates with us. We are the sinners and the tax collectors. We were the last, the lost, the least. We were those who rebelled against God and didn't even care, fought against him, warred against him as his enemies. We were the ones building a life completely separated from his promise and his covenants and hope in him. We were the ones making a mess of it all. And yet the perfect one came to identify with us to take, to take us. He chose us. He adopts us into his family. We bear his name. We carry his name around, which adds another layer of weight to that commandment. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. We're marked by him. We, who brought shame and reproach upon him, he shouldered our shame and reproach and instead gives to us his good standing and his righteousness. We are the kind of people that bring him down. We are the kind of people that the religious people would have mocked and looked on with scorn. And we're the kind of people reclining at the table. Why are you with the sinners and the tax collectors? And Jesus says, I didn't come to call self-righteous people. I came to give grace to those who know their true condition and know, and know who I am. You see, the great scandal of grace is that the Holy One didn't actually come for the holy. Not for the religious, not for the moral, not for the self-righteous. No, the Holy One came for the broken, the desperate, the hurting, the last, the lost, the least. And that's where he found me. By God's grace, that's where he found me. In a pile of a mess of my own making. And he set my feet on a solid rock. And he welcomed me into his family. And he clothed me with his righteousness. And he prepared a place for me at his table. And he partnered with me. And appointed me to herald his gospel. Strengthened me with new purpose and vision. But he found me in a mess. Which is where he found you. And all of that should drive us to heartfelt gratitude and worship that he would be so good to us. And it should drive us to unite with him in mission to reach the last, the lost, and the least. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scandal of grace that we who are undeserving received such lavish riches in the heavenly places. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who did not look at our sins as 
and our shame, our contempt, as something that was too great a barrier for him. But thank you that he absorbed in his own body all the shame and all the reproach and all the wrath that we stored up and identified with us and sat with me at a table and shared with me the message of hope and forgiveness and change. Thank you, God, that the call of the kingdom isn't to the pure and the moral and the righteous and the religious, but that the call of the kingdom is to those who realize their spiritual bankruptcy. And thank you for the way, God, that you forgave that debt and welcomed us into your family. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room today that you would just remind them again of the scandal and beauty of grace, that they would unite together in praise for your good name and the great love that you've shown us. I pray for those in the room who are exploring Christianity who have not yet made that leap of faith. I pray that you would help them today have the eyes of the Spirit to realize the futility of trying to earn their way to you, of trying to close the gap, of trying to clean themselves up. Help them to see the emptiness of that life and instead lead them to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Maybe today is their day of salvation where they cry out in humility. Oh Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I need you to save me. Maybe today is the day that they walk away from their previous life like Levi the tax collector, like I did so many years ago, and embrace the new life you're calling them to. Spirit, have free reign to move in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.